Tonight on Fast Stocks, rocked as a major sell-off grips Wall Street. The Dow plunging 570 points, putting the market on pace for its worst month of the year. Coming up, we're breaking down the aftermath of today's sell-off and finding you opportunity in this big drop. Welcome, everybody. I'm Melissa Lee, live at the Nasdaq Market Site in Times Square. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Dami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Dan Nathan. Let's get right to it. And we start off at ground zero of today's sell-off. A rate shock sinking stocks. Just take a look at the Nasdaq today. The index dropping nearly 3% for its worst day since March. This comes as a 10-year yield spiked to its highest level since June. So let's break down the action. What'd you make of the sell-off today, Guy? Interesting, orderly, makes sense. Um, again, I thought this was going to happen for a while, and I've been wrong in that uh, thought process. But now we have a two-day period of time where you're starting to see some of these things come to fruition. You know, I still believe 10-year yields are going significantly higher from the levels that we closed at today. I think inherent in that belief is that big tech sells off and resources, energy, and banks do relatively well, and I'll stick by that. But in terms of the sell-off, I, again, I don't know why over the last couple days the market's choosing to acknowledge all these things in the form of yields, a dollar rising, and the market going lower, but it finally is, and it makes sense to me. Karen? I'm not quite sure what to make of it because there's a lot of things that you can point to, to me, that seem to add a little bit of fuel to the fire. So clearly rates. Then there's the question of, is rates a function of the, the expectation of the economy getting better or just fear about inflation not being transitory and maybe this is getting away from the Fed? That's one fear. That's not a good one. I think that uh, Warren's comment about uh, Powell being a dangerous man actually was not helpful to the market. Um, we don't really hear much about his response as much as this, you know, that's kind of a, a good soundbite for her. Um, so that wasn't a good thing. Uh, I actually think also Jeremy Grantham, uh, uh, not uh, little Mr. Sunshine there, clearly pretty bearish. I think that was another leg lower. But I guess it's just all part of this, this rotation. And it makes sense to me out of the much higher multiple stocks. And I differentiate between those, the sort of the IGV names, which have super high multiples, you know, the ServiceNow and CrowdStrike and, uh, you know, great companies, but just really expensive multiples. And obviously, I always think, okay, what I own is more of more value in that it should have a, it has a lower multiple, so mm -hmm. I feel like it should have some protection. But that didn't work today. So you know, Alphabet, Facebook, Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, all of them down today. I'm not super worried about that, but I think we'll see the jobs number on Thursday. I guess it is is going to be pretty important to know. Does the Fed have any room to hold back? I think they don't. I think they got to get going. I think the second concern that Karen highlighted is is the most concerning, at least from this observer's standpoint, uh, Tim. In that the last time we saw rates move higher and we saw a market reaction like this, the the backdrop of this, um, I don't think was real inflationary fears where inflation could be more than transitory. That's only sort of materialized in the past couple of months. Where we're seeing the supply chain snags and things taking much longer to, to work through the chain. And here we are. So is this market reaction? Is this different this time around? I hate using that phrase, but is it different this time because of the backdrop? Well, well, I, I think it feels different. And, and I think, if anything, we were concerned about the economy opening and being so aggressive. And we were throwing a stimulus bill and an infrastructure bill on top of it. Um, I, I, like, I just... Uh, I understand rates have moved uh, 25 basis points in three days. That's unsettling if you prorate that over the next three months. 
Uh, but that's not what's going to happen. The, the, to me, I just think there's a limit to how high rates can go. I think, uh, like I think everybody on this panel, I, I do believe that there is more medium-term inflationary pressure, not transitory. Uh, labor service factors that are not going to leave us anytime soon. And I think the Fed needs to acknowledge that at some point and maybe behind closed doors they're going to start to in this next meeting. But I, I, I think the, 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 the Elizabeth Warren comments on, on top of just some anxiety over where you have had uh, some of the most important companies in the market. And again, we started talking about Apple supply chain. We started talking about Nike supply chain. Um, we've talked about autos. We've talked about chips. Um, I, you know, that's the most important thing. Uh, I, I just think there's a limit to where we can go. Uh, I don't see liquidity wholesale being taken out of this market. So Tina is still alive and well. Um, the problem for today and why it's great to have calm, cool, collected Carter on uh, shortly is, look, you closed through the lows of last Monday and Tuesday. It's the lowest close since July. You have some technical damage. We haven't challenged the 100-day, uh, arguably, really since back into last March, certainly last September through November. And, and, and the dollar set, you know, fresh new highs closing up you know, back to where it was last November and does look poised to move higher, which will be difficult. But Guy said it. Uh, value stocks, especially energy, transports, and, and I even think industrials, look okay to me here, and I think you stay there. So when you see the zooms of the world, the squares, et cetera, crushed in today's session, Dan, is that going to be the trend? Is, will that continue, or are these opportunities? Uh, I don't think there are opportunities just yet. And you mentioned a square. You know, this was an outperformer. Now it's an underperformer. It's only up 11% on the year. And I think if you look at some of the high valuation names, that had already peaked out a long time ago. You mentioned Zoom. I mean, Zoom topped out literally last fall here. So the valuation for many investors was becoming unpalatable relative to the expected deceleration in their growth post-pandemic. And I think that's the realization that's going on right now. In the Q1 of this year, when rates were rising, I think the expectation very simply was that the pandemic would be in our rearview mirror and that maybe the Fed had it right because that's why rates topped out in late March. Maybe they had it right about some of these price increases being transitory. I think rates going higher right now is not actually saying that. And therefore, the deceleration that we're seeing, not just in earnings, not just possibly peak margins, but the deceleration in the economy, specifically Q3 GDP, started the quarter. I think most estimates were above 8%. Now we're looking like 3%. That seems to be a little bit of a problem when you have rising rates now and the valuations that we do. And I'll just say this from a technical standpoint, there are some of the major market leaders who have finally broken the uptrends that have been in place for about a year or so. Microsoft, Alphabet, take a look at that. Facebook had already broken, um, I think, on fundamental reasons. So now the fever's kind of breaking in some of the mega cap names. And we talked about this last night. I am not sure a rotation into financials because net interest margins are going to be higher or energy because we have some supply demand dynamics that seem to be off-putting here is going to keep this market afloat. So I think the likelihood of a retest of that 4,100-ish 200-day moving average in the S&P 500 seems more likely than not at this point. Guy, you're with Dan on this. I mean, we did see a relative outperformance of banks in today's session as measured by the KRE Bank ETF. Yeah, I am with Dan, and the point, the point that I take away, and I think the point that he made is the fact that these names can do well, they can rally, but it's they're not going to be supportive of the broader market. They just don't have, the, they don't have the the size and scope to do that. Obviously, the names we talk about all the time did, 
but these names don't. So although I think banks, resources, energy can do well, they're not going to be supportive of the S&P 500. And Dan brought up 4,100. I'm sure Carter will mention that as well. That sort of lines up with the 200-day moving average, which we haven't seen probably in over 15 or 16 months. So it all makes sense. It all makes sense to me. Again, I'm not saying it's going to play out this way, but mm-hmm. over the last couple of days, at least, it has. Karen, you're a value investor. Are you celebrating? Mm-hmm. Are you, do you feel like the time is 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 here for the value trade to to stay strong? Uh, I hope so. It, you know, it wasn't. If you'd looked at my P&L for the day, it was not really a lot of celebration. Um, worthy stuff. But I do think the bank thing makes sense. I understand what Dan's saying about this doesn't directly translate into a, you know, a net interest margin spread. But what it does do, we know for years when the, when the, you know, the two-year tenure gets flatter, the sentiment against banks is worse. When it gets steeper, the sentiment is better. And so that's where we are right now. The other thing about banks is that they have multiples of like, you know, 11. So when you start to see multiples getting hurt, 11 is a lot better place to be than 48, you know, like some of the high flyers. So I'm comfortable owning those. I'm comfortable owning something like a United Rental um, and some of the industrials for me. FedEx really didn't do, you know, it was down a couple points today, but disappointing. That's got to bounce at some point. Um, so I like, I like getting ready for value, but, you know, I have some fang as well. That didn't do well today, but I do think that Facebook is value. I didn't buy it today, but I would, you know, that's starting to, if you take out the cash, it's just over a 20 multiple. So um, that's interesting to me. All right, let's bring in the chart master, Carter Worth. He says there could be even more downside ahead. Carter, why don't you lay this out for us? What are you seeing? You bet. Hi, team. So uh, before looking at the charts, I mean, you've covered key words. Uh, Dan, damage done. That's exactly right. Uh, Guy talking about trend lines breaking. And so... Let's look at the charts and figure out where we might be headed. The first chart is just the chart of the S&P, and you can see that it is a perfect 45-degree angle. No other way to characterize it. And we have broken trend. You can see the trend line, and you can see the break. Look at the second chart. Now, this is the exact same chart, exact same time frame, but you see this distribution pattern. That is the damage done. That is a head and shoulders formation, if you want to name your patterns, but it's what distribution looks like. You get that crack last Monday, we rallied back, and then we're cracking again. Now look at the third of the four charts that we have here this evening. This is one and two combined. So what do we have? An uptrend, a perfect uptrend, a perpetual motion machine, one group, next group, rotate, and yet it's starting to fray. We have a break in trend, we have a head and shoulders formation, and then the final chart, where might we be headed? Well, one thing we know, this is only the 13th instance in history where the S&P has gone more than 12 months without a check back fully to the 150-day moving average. And that comes into play around 42.35. So on last Monday's low, we were down 5.2%. We're only down, if you think about it, 4.3, 4.4. And yet it feels like we've been in a war. The truth is, I don't think the market's really ready for any real selling pressure because we haven't seen any in so long. 150 days is the first stop. We'll see from there. So 42.35. And Carter, we had you on just on Friday talking about rates. And, and basically, from what I understood, you said that rates would only go so much higher from that point on. So is this drop that you're forecasting to 42.35 in the context of rates coming back down? Well, interestingly, I think as if and as this gets worse, you'll start to get a flight to safety in rates. Um, 
uh, rates won't really spike. And, and Tim referred to that. It's only so far they can go in this particular sequence. It's been a big move. And this is where you likely actually don't keep going because the consensus is once again calling for two and three and all these quite hysterical things. I don't think any of that is coming. And mathematically, Carter, the traders are talking about tech uh, and, and with a decline in tech, rotation out of technology, the other parts of the market simply aren't big enough. You talk about this a lot in terms of mathematically, but at some point, tech has to pass the baton. So what are you looking for in terms of new That's leadership? Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I remain in the camp that you want to stick with companies that are, quote, long-term prosperous. They're not cyclical, right? They're disruptors. That's what investing is, independent of whether you call it value or growth. Investing is finding something that has a long arc of prosperity. Digging around in the dumpster and finding a cyclical for a bounce, you caught it for nine months, then you got out, then you got back in, that's hard work. And uh, I think you stick with the marquee names over time. So Cool Carter, um, it's Tim. And the two charts that I think investors should be focused on that had uh, interesting days on the breakout or the breakdown, uh, semiconductors, so look at the SMH and the dollar. One or the other, more important to you and anything you saw there, because these are both stocks uh, or, or, or indices that I, I think are telling a lot about where the market concerns are. I think you're exactly right. And one, of course, we know the dollar has all the hallmarks of a bearish to bullish reversal, something that's been weak that is curling up, carving out a bottom. The other is a heretofore great winner, semis that have basically been stalled for the better part of seven, eight months. And while they haven't really broken trend, that is the risk. Um, again, do we though play for stocks like US Steel and Nucor or an energy that in any given day drops seven, eight percent after they rally seven, eight percent? Um, not my thing. I think it's a hard way to make money. I'd rather stick with uh, the names that over time have uh, been great market leaders. Hey, Carter, it's Dan. You know, one of the um, things that I've been tracking over the summer was the kind of disconnect between that ARK Invest innovative um, ETF and Tesla, which is its largest holding. Tesla has gone up 15% since July 1st, and ARK has gone down about 15%. When you think about a lot of the other names in that top 10, there's supposedly these um, innovative names, all very high valuation. Most of them are down. Most of them are down a lot from their 60, um, you know, 52-week highs, that sort of thing, earlier this year. What do you, what do you make of that under performance from some of these prior high valuation winners and then this disconnect between um, Tesla. The ETF in and of itself is not a big deal. I just think that it's captured a lot of mind share among retail investors, which is one of the reasons why I'm taking a look at it. Yeah, spot on. I mean, if you were to look at a chart, a comparative two-line chart of Tesla and that ARK ETF, they are literally parallel lines until the last three months where they're diverging. And a lot of the constituents in the ETF are rolling, just as you said, where their moving averages are flat and or actually inflecting lower. And Tesla, for whatever reason, is taking on a defensive characteristic. It, it sounds crazy to even say that. Um, and yet it is. The, its relative strength over the last couple of sessions is nothing short. Carter, always great to hear from you. Thanks so much. Okay. Carter Worth of Cornerstone Macro. Dan, I'll go right back to you on that chart because, it, it, as Carter mentioned, in his very last comment, Tesla's been an, a relative outperformer in the past two days, particularly today when we saw the Nasdaq down 3%. Yeah. Um, Tesla's losses were just a, you know, a fraction of that. Yeah, so that's one of the reasons why we also bring that up, because ultimately, if they join the party to the downside, Tesla is the sixth largest name in the NDX. Those top six names make up half the weight of that index of 100 stocks. And again, I'm tracking this 
from this relationship from a sentiment standpoint, right? What have we seen so far this year? We've seen IPO, high valuations, get killed. We've seen crypto off the highs um, gotten killed. We've seen SPACs off their highs getting killed, that sort of thing. So I think this could be one of the last pieces of the puzzle in the break of Alphabet and Microsoft today of those one-year uptrends. If if, uh, Tesla's to join the party, then you start getting this kind of steamroll effect a little bit. And that's how I think you probably achieve those lows near 4,100 over the next few weeks in the S&P 500. We talk about FANG a lot and the importance of FANG and holding up the NDX, but uh, Tesla, we sort of forget that it's gotten all the way up there, Guy. So is that the last sort of key to the puzzle here in terms of whether or not, uh, you know, the markets will actually break? Yeah, a key without question. I mean, but the stock has had a significant run to the upside. So Mm -hmm. in my opinion, Tesla, you have to be talking about Tesla with like a 650 handle for me to get concerned in terms of its uh, scope in the broader market. I think to Carter's point, you know, staying with things that have worked, I think you're trying to figure out uh, where you're looking to re-enter some of these names. And we've talked, about the, we've talked about Apple, if you want to get granular for a second. I mean, this 141, 142 level makes sense, but we've seen a number of peak-to-drop declines, anywhere from 15 to 30% over the last three years, and I think we're in the midst of one now. So if Apple were to trade back to 135, which if you go back and look, that was a prior all-time high, I think, back in April, that's a 15% move. That lines up perfectly with what we've seen historically. I think that's the way your mind has to be working right now. All right. Our next guest warns the spike in rights is pricking what he calls a big tech bubble. Dan Suzuki is a deputy chief investment officer at Richard Bernstein Advisors. Dan, great to have you with us. Um, how, big is this, how big is this tech bubble in your view? And tech is very big. I mean, we're talking about large cap uh, technology versus some of the, the growthier, higher valuation names. Where is this bubble? I think it's uh, you hit the nail on the head, Melissa. This is a monstrous bubble. I mean, it's uh, you know, it's not just a speculative market, and that's a key distinction. The difference between a speculative market and a bubble is it's pervading society. So it's everywhere you look, and it's all over uh, our economy, our real economy, as well as the market. So I think it's not only expensive and it's big, but it's also pervading society. So I think that you know, the the difficulty here is how you how you manage through a double, just identifying it is only half the battle. Figuring out how you manage through it is the other, other difficult part. You know, I don't claim to know exactly when the bubble is going to pop. Um, so that I think the, the only prudent alternative is to the bigger the bubble gets, the more crowded the bubble gets, to simply you know continue to shift your portfolio to the other side of the seesaw. You know, there's a vacuum in the markets that's sucking in all the capital. You know, that's leaving other opportunities that are left for dead. And I think that's the real thing that's going to protect your portfolio when and if the bubble pops. Dan, it's Karen. So thanks for being on. Let's say, though, you have, like I do, I have particular views about parts of the tech uh, bubble, we call it, and other parts of the tech bubble. Do you think we will see a, uh, a convergence there, maybe? Or do you think they just all go down the same? How do you foresee this bubble deflating? Yeah, Karen, I don't think they're, they're all going to go down the same. I mean, if you just think about what's happened today in terms of the interest rate sensitivity, you know, I, I agree with you what you were saying before about, you know, the lower multiple stocks by definition should be less duration, less interest rate sensitivity because they have earnings today. You know, the, what really makes a lot of these high growth stocks, you know, more interest rate sensitivity is you're paying for earnings 20 and 30 years down the line, which, you know, the sensitivity around interest rates is a lot greater. So, I agree with you there. Today was, you know, a bit interesting, but I do think, you know, the one thing to keep in mind is, you know, they're all very correlated. And so, you know, the closer you are to that bubble, which any types of tech stocks are sort of in the epicenter of the within the epicenter of the bubble, 
you know, the more it's going to be taken down when and if the bubble pops. So something to keep in mind, but I agree with you, if you're trying to avoid the riskiest names, it's those most expensive stocks. Dan, I hope you had the opportunity to listen to the conversation we had earlier, trying to figure out if the move in rates is, it signifies a, an economy that's doing better or if economy that's just sort of going nowhere to lower, but price is getting out of control. I happen to think it's a prices thing, but what are your thoughts in terms of this move in yields and what does it mean for the broader market? Yeah, Guy, uh, I think it's, to my opinion, my personal opinion is I think it's a bit mixed. I mean, I think the story, you know, this week in rates has been really one of supply and demand and what the Fed's going to do. Um, but I think that, you know, prior to that, you know, there's there's actually an underpinning of, of better growth that's coming down the line. I mean, if you think about it, you know, the growth, the slow the slowdown in growth that you're seeing today is really a function of Delta. And we're pretty much past the peak there. I think there's plenty of room for recovery. So if you believe that story, it's not only going to be the supply demand dynamic that's going to drive rates higher, but it's growth on top of that and inflation inflation on top of that. So with those three big drivers, I think that I agree with you. I think rates are going to be higher. And I think there's, you know, it's not going to be a straight line, but I think there's plenty more room to go. Dan, you know, when you use the term monstrous to describe the tech bubble, that sort of sent the red lights flashing in my mind because <laughs> I was I was thinking, well, if it's that monstrous, aren't the entire markets going to go down? I mean, how can the other side of the trade, the value stocks actually do OK in, in a market that's going to be taken down by a monstrous tech bubble? So wh- why would you recommend that as opposed to just going to cash if this is such a, a big thing that you're you're forecasting? Yeah, Melissa, it's a really good question. I think that, you know, the ultimate you know protection from a bubble is getting away from the bubble as far as you can. And so to some extent, you know, at some point, you know, the cash component may may be called for and may be part of that protection story. I think right now, you know, there's other areas of the market that are, are still have so much room for recovery and are not pricing in that recovery are much cheaper uh, than those tech stocks that, you know, they, they offer a lot more potential upside. And, and moving to the other side of the seesaw, it's not all a one-sided trend. You can't just rely on historical relationships. Just as an example, you know, 2000 and 2001, that two-year period where tech stocks were down 50 to 60 percent, S&P was taken down with it. It was down 20. But small cap value stocks were actually up 40 percent. Now, who would have thought that small cap value stocks can be up let alone 40 percent when the S&P is crashing. And that's the power of going to the other side of the seesaw. So if you can find the other side of the seesaw, I think it can offer some protection. All right, Dan, great to hear from you. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Dan Suzuki, RBA Advisors. Um, Tim Seymour, you like these plays on the other side of the seesaw, but what does that seesaw feel like in the meantime when when rates are are elevated and, and tech is the driver? I think we've had rotation in this market since May of 2020, and at times it's felt really uncomfortable, but the the banks were running back in May of 2020, and and then they ran out of gas. I think there's a lot of that going on. I would still hold to, um, I don't want to oversimplify this, but there there really aren't a lot of of other options out there for investors. And to say that suddenly we're going to reverse this passive uh, inflow of, of capital is, is, is the only condition in which you're going to see the entire market get toppled over to the extent that, you know, I don't think anybody's made that prognostication today. But um, I, I ultimately see a dynamic where it's all about the Fed. I know we've talked about the Fed here, but that's the only thing that's going to see this market. And again, a major change in Fed policy that catches the market off guard that's going to have this market do the kind of a pullback that some people are talking about. Um, Dan, I'm not quick. trying to make light sure. of a dangerous day, but I think that's where we are. 
Dan? Yeah, and I think Tim makes a really good point. I mean, I, I think this conversation took somewhat of a bearish tone on a really bad close, right? And on September 20th, on that Monday, we weren't really afforded the ability to talk about a market that closed at a low, right, over a period of time because we had that reversal. And I just wanted to say one thing. I mean, I'm relatively constructive on the notion that the economy will start to inflect a little bit, dealing with some of the deceleration that we've seen in Q3 that was unexpected. But for me, what really comes down to is a 10% pullback from the high in the S&P 500 on September 2nd from 45.50 gets you down to that 200-day moving average. You take a lot of excess speculation and exuberance out of the market, and then you get that opportunity to play for new highs and maybe get all the way back to most of those strategists um, targets at the year end that are above 4,500 or something. But we need a little bit of fear. Guy used the term orderly. That's what we've had so far. Maybe we get a little bit of fear. We get down towards that 200-day moving average and you bounce from there. That's the opportunity, I think, that the market's going to present you on the long side. I don't think there's anything that says crash right here from the highs. All right. We're just getting started here on Fast Money. Up next, much more on today's market sell-off and where our traders are finding opportunity in some beaten-down names. They'll lay out their picks. But first, we're watching shares of Micron. That stock is down 4% in the after-hour session on earnings. That is on top of today's nearly 3% drop. We'll have the latest from the quarter when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got a news alert. The NYSE setting a reference price for Warby Parker's direct listing. Forty bucks a share. The stock is set to start trading tomorrow. Should be an interesting debut, Dan. Yeah, I know. We were just talking about some of these pockets, let's just say, of speculation where these companies don't have large track records. This is going to be one of them. And you know that these direct listings, some of them have traded worse out of the gate than the ones that go through regular way. They just don't have the same support um, from the underwriters. So let's see how this thing trades. The valuation is going to be one of the issues here. And some of these direct-to-consumer names that are early and kind of pre-profit, and I know that maybe they're kind of have a, expected to have a small profit here, um, you know, this is, this is a tough road to hoe. Um, so I think it'll be a really good sentiment indicator right now as the market's in the throes of the sell-off. All right, let's get back to the sell-off. Speaking of, stocks up plunging on Wall Street today. All three major averages taking a nosedive. Our traders say there could be, though, some big opportunities in the pullback. Time to break out our sell-off shopping list. Tim, let's kick it off with you. Where are you finding opportunity? Well, I, I think you go to the beast of the semiconductor world, and we've talked all show all the different reasons, including Micron just giving you some insight also in a different, slightly different part of that space where uh, there's treacherous sledding ahead. But Taiwan Semi is a beast. Uh, they'll be $100 billion in revenue soon. This is a company growing roughly 20%. You know, and it's not a young company, and they've got the kind of growth rates in this sector that I think should be rewarding. The valuation's not expensive. Disruption in data center, they're going to be a much, much bigger player in smartphone chips. Uh, and I just think any pullback is to be bought. They have boxed out, and they've obviously changed the way people like Intel are assessing their business. They are the folks to beat any major pullback. You need to own this. Karen, not only did you make a list, you actually bought off that list today. So what did you buy? I did something a little bit unusual, which was Huntsman. And it's, it's sort of an event risk as opposed to a market risk. So they're a very sort of GDP correlated, right? They do all kinds of adhesives and coating and insulation and textiles, all that kind of stuff. But most important thing was Starboard taking an 8.4% position last night. And it wasn't the most hostile 13D, but I thought it was sort of thinly veiled quasi-hostile. So the entire board is up for election next spring. 
And they, uh, owning 8.4% is a big position. They're a Delaware Corp, so in terms of a, an activist shareholder, that's a pretty nice sort of target to look at. And so I think either they deliver and put up good earnings themselves, or Starboard's going to feel like, all right, we've got to get more aggressive. And, you know, one of the things they talked about was a business combination, whether that's the overall sale of the company or whether that's, you know, changing, uh, just divesting or uh, some divisions. It's unclear to me. But the stock was only up a little bit. It kind of got lost in the noise of the day. So I thought this is sort of an interesting risk reward. You're buying it just a little bit higher than Starboard's last purchases of yesterday, I think, was they were still buying. All right. Dan, how about you? Yeah, I'll be quick here. This is Nike, and I know that the whole panel, um, you know, over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about it because of the guidance that they gave and the stocks declined since then. It's down about 17% from those recent highs, just above 174. And I'll just mention this. Remember late June and their fiscal Q4 result, the stock gapped up 15% to an all-time high. Runaway breakout kept on going here. I think it likely fills in a little bit more of that gap. But then at some point, you're going to want to buy a stock like this because if you look quarter over quarter, and the two sets of results they had, we can put our finger on what just happened here, and we can also speculate they're likely to get back to some of the trends that they reported in late June and the guidance that they gave. So to me, filling in that June gap, Nike looks really interesting to me. Guy, you've got one that uh, is a name we don't often talk about. No, we do from time to time. Many years ago in a Fast Money meeting, I suggested we buy an RV paint fast money on the side and go cross country doing the show for a few months and after the laughter subsided I was kicked out of the room. It seems as if if you look at this quarter I was way ahead of my time. I'm just going to read you a couple numbers because it's staggering. In terms of backlog, North American towable, which is something you tow behind your F-150 mail, up 236 percent year over year. North American Motorized, you're behind the wheel for that one, up 176% year over year. And even in Europe, you saw staggering numbers. So this is a cheap stock on many metrics. I think people are coming to the realization that, hey, this is a viable alternative. And I think the stock can trade back to that 146 level or so we saw in the spring. Um, I have a question. Alternative to what exactly? Well, did you happen to see those housing prices today, Melms? I mean, (laughs) I know that everything is transitory in today's world, and the Fed's got it right, and they're geniuses that happen to trade on the side. But a lot of people are thinking, you know what, maybe this is the way to go. So, And don't discount it. If you go to one of these places, you can't. The only thing they have in in inventory are pictures of these things. Okay. Coming up, a biotech beatdown. The IBB falling hard in today's pullback. How are traders are navigating this one? But first, a green light in today's sea of red. The one auto stock driving higher in this sell-off will get you the name. Stay with us. Fast Money's back right after this. Welcome back. CNBC is delivering Alpha kicks off tomorrow. It is a can't-miss event, virtual one, following today's sell-off. Not too late to sign up. Register right now at DeliveringAlpha.com. Check out a big bright spot in today's sea of red. Ford gaining more than a percent after announcing it would invest more than $11 billion in EV production. The stock is now up more than 8% in the past four sessions. Tim, you've been a big uh, believer in Ford. Yeah, and and I think the company has almost zero EV in the valuation. We know what 
Tesla and even a couple other folks in, in the SPAC world have been able to do with EV as it relates to also even investment in plants and, and, and in battery technology. So, um, look, I think that what you investors rightly have focused on with Ford also is profitability and a car company that needs to work through some, some, some legacy issues. But they, they are, they have, and they have the most popular, arguably the most profitable vehicle in the world in the F-150. So um, what's the multiple you put on it? As I say all the time, get a little bit of a hybrid EV multiple in here. And Ford and GM are really cheap. Stock's now up 15% after a tough time. We priced in a lot of supply disruption uh, on the chip side. GM was also a relative outperformer in today's sell-off. Karen, what sort of multiple should GM have if you factored in EV? Higher than here. I'm not sure how much higher, but the chasm is just enormous. I mean, even if it were to get, uh, I don't know, low double digits, let's say which wouldn't be crazy. Um, it's significantly up from here. All right. Coming up, the biotech breakdown, the IBB ETF, not immune to today's sell-off. We're digging into the drop. Plus, we're getting you set up for tomorrow's trading session, what our traders are doing and watching ahead of the open. Back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. It was a biotech beatdown in today's market sell-off. The biotech ETF losing more than 3% today. It's now down 5% in the past week. Tim, you actually flagged this move. Well, if you think about the components of this ETF, that explains part of it. I mean, you have a, a case of Moderna moving from 460 to 380. Um, most of the names below Moderna have been relatively stable. And again, during a time when markets are questioning either valuations, uh, possibly balance sheets, and, and certainly a case where you have growth or not, I think most of the names in, in below the, the surface there in the IBB are actually very interesting and defensive plays here. So if anything, I think you keep an eye on this and make sure you know what you own uh, in a lot of these ETFs because the, the, the weightings in this have changed dramatically over the last year. Guy? I think the Biogen move is staggering. Listen, I, I thought it would trade down to 325 after we got that great news many months ago, but I never think we get this low. And here we are at 285. I think Biogen is worth a look here for a trade for sure. Anything incrementally positive on the margins in terms of headlines, and this is back to 350. So I'm with Tim and what he said. Individual names, Biogen sticks out to me. We also, by the way, saw some big options activity in this space. Let's get to Mike Coe, who's got this one. Mike? Yeah, so we're taking a look here at ARKG. This is ARK's uh, Genomic Revolution ETF, maybe a little bit less well-known than the Innovator ETF, but it was definitely active today. It traded six times its average daily put volume and puts outnumbered calls by about two and a half to one. The most active options were the weekly 76 strike puts. We saw about 5,700 of those trading for about $1.78. That was largely the result of a big roll that we saw. Somebody who had previously made a bearish bet in the 79 strike puts rolled down to those 76s and upsized their trade, pressing their bearish bet and betting that the weakness we saw today could potentially continue through the end of the week. All right. Thank you so much, Mike. Uh, for more Options Action, be sure to tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Still ahead, we're getting you set up for tomorrow's trading session. The one thing our traders are watching ahead of the open. Fast Money's back in two. Elon Musk making headlines at the Code Conference. Let's get to Julia Borston with the latest. He's talking about crypto, huh, Julia? Yes, Melissa, that's right. Gary Gensler was here talking about regulating crypto, 
Kara Swisher asked Elon Musk what he thinks should be done about regulating crypto, and he said nothing. He said, said that though, you know, Kara Swisher put it as the Wild West of finance, he thinks that nothing should be done. Um, he talked about how he's very familiar with money systems, obviously came from PayPal, but he thinks that this is an area that's better unregulated. Um, also weighing in on China, saying he's not particularly concerned about U.S.-China relations, saying that he thinks that the Chinese government and the way it treats entrepreneurs and the like will get better with time that's just been damaged in part by the lack of ability to have in-person meetings during the pandemic. Also talking about space travel, saying he's glad that Bezos and uh, Richard Branson are investing in space travel, but making it very clear that what he's doing, orbital space travel, is very different, much more complex and much more expensive. But saying he himself doesn't need to go to space. This is more about him creating an interplanetary species. Melissa? Um, Thank you, Julia Borston. Uh, from the code conference. Dan, Dan, you are there. Leave it to Elon Musk to talk about these species intergalactic or whatnot. (laughs) Well, it's funny. If you were expecting him to be really excitable, he's not. He's pretty chill. He actually has like one of those things that guy probably wears at home um, around his neck, you know, like one of those things on him. I will say he said this to Kara Swisher, who asked him the question about China. His first response, and I think he was trying to be snarky, was, where is Jack Ma? Which I think is really interesting because then he went into this other bit. So um, interesting question from a CEO of a company that is one of the largest in the world. All right. Um, Up next, tomorrow's setup, and we've got your final trades. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Fast. Let's get set up for tomorrow's uh, big trading session following today's drop. What is the first thing, the first thing you're watching ahead of that opened? Guy? Well, Dan mentioned that I wear something around the neck. I'm sure a lot of people are wondering what that is. It's a name tag, so I remember who I am at my age. That typically happens, number one. Number two, I'll be watching the Russell. Now, I think the IWM will tell you whether or not this move in rates is because the economy's getting better, which is obviously would be supportive of economically sensitive names, or if it's more a price thing, which should be a detrimental. So for me, amongst many things, it would be the IWM. Tim? You know, clearly the dollar is something that I think could be taking the next leg higher. A stock that we haven't mentioned, this is kind of a Dan statement, but Amazon may be one of the most important stocks or important charts to look at right now. If you think about it, it's about to break the 200. A stock that's done nothing. It's 8% of the NASDAQ, and it's certainly emblematic of a lot of the things that could be under pressure here. So I'm watching Amazon. Dan, since you said it was sort of a Dan statement, I'll let you go next. I, I love it. I, any Dan statement is a good statement to me. Um, guy, it was a handkerchief ascot, and you probably do wear those. Um, no, I'm watching rates here. Usually in a sell-off like this, we might see yields going lower, flight to quality for bonds, but we've seen them gone up over the last few days for all the things that we've just talked about here. I think the best thing for equities right now would be rates stabilizing a little bit. Karen, how about you? I actually think that the reaction to the Micron news is kind of interesting because we've seen a bunch of companies now that talk about supply chain problems and that hurt their quarter. This quarter is okay, but the future quarter is looking murky because of that. I actually think if that trades okay, you could see a turnaround in the SMH, which I think would be important. Yep. And Karen, by the way, you're also looking, you would look for the opportunity to add to Facebook, right? Yes, I would tomorrow's session. We shall see. Going to be a big day. Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Tim? 
Yeah, it's Home Depot uh, in terms of all the trends around housing, but where you want to invest in housing. And I think the story here is a great one. It's had a pullback, not a ton, um, but you need to be watching Home Depot also to buy on a pullback. Karen. So if you don't want to take market risk or interest rate risk and all of that event risk for me, that would be Huntsman. I like the activist element of it. It sets up. It's interesting. Dan Nathan. Yeah, when I see like an earnings period like we're going to go into that's going to be so critical, I think, on so many levels here. You know, when you have a company like Nike, we talked about it a little bit before, kind of already sound the alarm a little bit. The worse it gets overdone is the more opportunity that I see coming out of that period. So Nike, to me, filling in that gap makes sense. Guy? You know, the Mets are playing a twin bill. It must be come as your favorite empty seat day at Shea because, my God, <laughs> a lot of empty seats out there. I'm just saying. I mean, I don't know. I thought meaningful September baseball. Newmont Mining traded down to the February lows, bounced today. Uh, Newmont Mining looks interesting for you Met fans out there that still want to talk to me. <laughs> Thanks for watching Fast. See you tomorrow at 5. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts now. <laughs> 